Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Alain Ebobisset. He's the CEO of Africa 50. That's a $1 billion infrastructure fund focused on Africa, supported by 28 African nations and two African central banks. Please join me in welcoming Alain Ebobisset to Cleaning Up. So Alain, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you, Michael, for inviting me on your show. So where are you, where are you um, actually calling in from today? Well, I'm uh, calling in from uh, Casablanca in Morocco, where the headquarters of uh, Africa 50 is, uh, is located. And uh, we spend quite a bit of time um, at the headquarters because uh, we travel a bit less these days because of the pandemic. Uh, so that's where I am, actually. And in fact, you and I have now met twice in uh, fairly recent months on Zoom, because the last time we met was at the uh, uh, Atlantic Council's Energy Summit, which was just going into the summer, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I, I remember that, uh, that, that meeting actually uh, on Zoom, of course. Uh, it was quite interesting because at the time uh, we were discussing already, um, uh, you know, some of the themes that uh, I'm sure we will be discussing today uh, with our friends, uh, David Goldwyn of, uh, of uh, the Atlantic Council and, and others. So I'm happy to reconnect, actually. Very good. And I seem to remember that we sort of got a little bit distracted onto hydrogen. We'll have to see whether we, you know, it's, it's a, the topic of the day. And whenever you mention hydrogen, the rest of the session tends to be just about hydrogen, but we're going to try and avoid that mistake. Um, that is true. Uh -huh. That is true. So let's let's do something. Um, we have a very uh, diverse audience. There are some people who know who are real kind of technocrats. They know more about this stuff than, than certainly than me, maybe even than you. Uh, but we also have a lot of generalists in the audience mm -hmm. who they are aware of a lot of the themes around climate change, the net zero transition. Uh, they know that COP26 is coming up, but they don't know. Uh, they're not specialists. And they won't know what Africa 50 is. So why don't yeah. we start there and you explain what is Africa 50? What is it that you do? Yeah, no, thank you, Michael. And uh, honestly, I suspected that uh, not everyone in your audience will know about Africa 50. Uh, so we are essentially a Pan-African organization with the mandate uh, given to us by uh, African head of states uh, to catalyze uh, more private sector financing to help bridge, uh, bridge the infrastructure gap in Africa. So we do this uh, by carefully uh, preparing projects to make them bankable, attractive to investors, and really uh, ready to receive uh, financing. And uh, we are relatively new in the market. That's probably why most people don't know us, at least a lot of people don't know us. Uh, but the key differentiating factor here is that we are funded entirely by African shareholders, uh, 28 countries uh, for now, but we hope to have all African countries as shareholders. We have two central banks, African central banks, and also the African Development Bank. And we have about uh, less than a billion dollars of uh, committed capital today, which we invest in project. Uh, uh, and, and we have a double bottom line of developing impact, but also, also uh, financial returns because you know it's, it's nothing wrong with making money. And, and we operate like a, a private sector fund. We are nimble. Uh, we have a private sector approach. And we target, we're focusing on um, a few sectors um, for now, uh, energy, uh, transport, uh, ICT, 
midstream gas, I'm sure we were talking about it. Uh, it's also a sector of focus. But recently we added um, health infrastructure, fintech and education. So this is in a nutshell what we do. I, I guess I can mention one of the things which makes our society different from many of the uh, uh, investors is that because of our shareholder base, which is composed uh, essentially of government uh, and, and the LDB and others, we can act as a bridge between government and the private sector to help better manage public-private relationships and actually reduce the political and regulatory risk. That we believe that can help speed up implementation of projects. That's something that I wanted to put on the table for your audience to know. Okay, and just in terms of legal structure, are you a multilateral, so similar to World Bank or the IFC or Africa Development Bank, or are you who who owns the actual equity and and how are you set up? Well, well, that's uh, very true. We are we are a multilateral uh, organization uh, owned by twenty eight African countries so far, which are shareholders and also funders, and uh, we have uh, uh, well. I, the immunity, immunities and uh, you know uh, the, so on, the some of these mechanisms that um, typical uh, MDBs, multilateral development banks have. But we have a, a focus mandate, so we are, we don't do like a, a lot of activities that uh, MDBs will typically do. Uh, but uh, uh, we we focus on infrastructure only, and and at the management and the board level, we decided to focus a bit more also on equity and quasi-equity, meaning that as of today, we don't provide, uh, not by statute, by decision that we decided, we don't provide debt financing, but mostly equity, quasi-equity, and also the project development support, project preparation, because one of the key constraints in infrastructure development in Africa, but also globally, it's really uh, the limited resources to make project bankable, the early stage resources that you actually need to build up the pipeline of bankable projects we do that as a priority. Okay, now there's a lot there that we can unpack, and I think we should in terms of how projects kind of get through the system and how their cap table, how their financing is put together. Uh, but just before I do that, um, there is, of course, the Africa Development Bank, which you mentioned is one of your backers. So do you now compete with them, or are you their infrastructure fund, or are you independent, but you've agreed not to compete? How does that interface work? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think the Africa Development Bank, first of all, uh, started Africa 50 uh, when the African head of state uh, called for the creation of innovative instruments to help bridge the, the infrastructure gap in Africa. They tasked the African Development Bank to create Africa 50. So today, Africa Development Bank is a major shareholder, but they also sit on the board. So the chairman of the board of directors of Africa 50 is the president of the African Development Bank. So we try to operate in a, coordinate, in the, in a coordinated way but it, we have separate governance structures, okay? So we try to, again, uh, to make sure that uh, we don't compete. And indeed, uh, you know, as of now, <laughs> we haven't competed, but it may happen that uh, there is a case where <laughs> we, could, we could compete. I, I would hope that we will try to avoid it because there is a lot to be done and we don't necessarily need to compete on specific projects. Well, that's right. I mean, when you look at the numbers and everybody says between now and 2050, I don't know how many trillion uh, is needed for infrastructure in Africa, but certainly it's more than the one billion that you've so far got at your uh, disposal. Uh, yes. Very good. Now, um, what is a typical 
project that you might work on? Give us, I don't know, maybe you can give us an yeah. example or, or a few examples of how big are they? Uh, you've talked about some of the sectors, energy, yeah. ICT, health infrastructure, and so on. But what size and range of projects are we talking about uh, across those sectors? Yeah, no, I think that's also a fair question. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, for us, the sweet spot is a project which are not too small or not too big. Uh, so sweet spot is maybe a project with a total project cost of between $300 million and half a billion dollars. Um, because those projects, uh, we believe that with our balance sheet and investing equity, we can make them happen. Of course, we're also investing in bigger projects. For example, in Cameroon, we invested in a $1.2 billion project called Nactigal, where we are a minority shareholder. And, and, and also because we have some of the smaller countries in Africa as a part of our shareholding, we could, take, we could also look for slightly smaller projects. But of course, you know that uh, it's very complicated as an infrastructure investment shop to look at small projects because you will tend to do the same type of due diligence. And then uh, it could cost a lot of money by looking at small projects. So we look at those small projects exceptionally. So any any anything which is between 300 to 400, uh, $500 million of project cost, total project cost, I mean, it's something that we, we like to we like to take a look at. So Alain, uh, let's do this. Um, let's unpack a typical project then. You said 300 to $500 million. Let's yeah. go for $400 million project. And yeah. let's go back in time uh, to where it originated and follow it through until uh, it's secured the full $400 million required to be built. First of yes. all, how long does that take? Yes. Well, thank you, Michael. I think it's a good question because, um, you know, let me take an example. For example, uh, a project that we did in, uh, in Egypt, uh, it's part of the 1.5 gigawatt Bemban Solar uh, Park. And we have at Africa 50, we have 400 megawatt uh, uh, in, in, in six projects. So it took us about uh, two and a half years to three years to uh, develop the project, uh, raise the financing and construct, build the plants. And now the project is delivering power to Egyptians, uh, populations and businesses. Now, so it's three years, the whole cycle. That's fast. Uh, and we hope that most of the project will take, uh, uh, you know, only three years to, to get done. But that's not the case. And so it takes a bit more time uh, to do those projects, typically uh, from the early stage, the concept phase, to the time when you raise the financing and then you build the project. Now, the hydro projects or some of those large projects are extremes. Uh, they take a lot, a lot more time. Solar, some of the renewables, you can go faster, which is also why it's attractive. But the point I would like to make is that this situation that I'm describing it's not only the case in Africa. You see that also in other regions of the world uh, where uh, they're still uh, in the developing phase of the economy, sectors are not fully stable yet, et cetera. But uh, the important point is who spent the, uh, the first dollars uh, to actually to put a project together? At Africa 50, we do that as well through our project development fund. I think this is one of the most important parts, in my opinion, of trying to unlock the uh, private capital, actually to bring the private capital into infrastructure in Africa and in other developing countries, is the money that you spend early stage to put together the project, to bring advisors, lawyers, engineers, economists, environmental and social people to do the studies, the feasibilities, to negotiate the contract, 
to provide a bankable solution to investors, later stage investors that typically, if the project is well designed, they will jump on it and finance it. But how do you get from concept to then the financeable project is what we do, but we did a lot more effort in that particular space. Right, and we'll come back to the concept of bankability because for us, that means a lot. We know what we're talking about when we say bankability, but it may be that there are some others who don't have uh, a good idea of that. But the, those that early stage money, so do you tend to develop the idea? Do you originate the ideas or do people come to you? Do host countries come and say, you know, we've got a, an area where we could do solar or we need a, a, a rail connection here or we need hospitals there. I mean, who, where do the ideas come from? And then you step in with this uh, development fund, right? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's all of the above. Uh, sometimes ideas come from co-developers, some developers who have started to, uh, to develop a project spending money and they feel that Africa 50 will be a good partner to join forces together to develop the project and speed up uh, implementation to get to financial close because the name of the game is to get to financial close as quickly as possible. That's how developers make money. So right. it could come from developers, but it can also come from government, uh, that will, especially our shareholders, that would ask us to look into a project. Uh, for example, this is what we did in Senegal. This is what we do in Kenya, for example, where we are trying to develop the first transmission PPPs, in a, uh, major transmission PPPs in Africa. So it could come from private investors, developers, government, or sometimes us, where we are proposing some ideas because we are there to actually to make things happen. Right. So those are the three areas how the project actually will come to us. Okay, and a, and a transmission PPP, this is a, a, a piece of grid infrastructure that's going to be uh, built and run by a private organization, but to a specification from the public yes. sector and funded out of payments for results, right? That is absolutely correct. And, and that has been done in other regions of the world. But in Africa, we, we haven't seen any major uh, transmission project being done uh, through right. a PPP or private sector. Typically, they're funded with government money. And we are arguing that we have to start moving the ball and trying to bring the private sector to do this. And we'd like to do the first major ones uh, soon. Okay, and now this question of bankability, which is very relevant in that example, it's presumably easier to get to bankability because you have a contract with a government or a, a government-owned transmission entity. But what do you, when define bankability if you can? Well, uh, bankability, bankability is simple. It's what the lenders will finance. But of course, uh, you tell me, okay, Alain, you have to give me more. That's a circular. Uh, that's a circular <laughs> definition. Bankability is whatever the bankers want, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, more or less, honestly, uh, Michael, because uh, some bankers will accept to finance stuff that other bankers want. But uh, to give you a more uh, substantive answer, so bankability has several dimensions. At the end of the day, the way I look at it is basically a project where you have allocated the risk in a way that the project participants feel comfortable that they can take the risk for the returns that they expect. So that means what? That means that in some projects, which are a bit, in some countries which are a bit more advanced, you can have a government commitment uh, to offtake power, let's say power, without you needing to enhance that government commitment with all kinds of uh, political risk mitigation instrument. Whereas in some other countries, you will do the government commitment and you will say, okay, I'll take this government commitment naked. I don't need to backstop that government commitment. 
So in other places, you don't even need the government commitment. You go merchant and say, okay, there's enough supply demand here where, where I understand the supply demand dynamic. I'm going to take the risk that there will be enough uh, you know, demand to sell my product. And I will do it on a merchant basis. It's still bankable. But in most of emerging markets, uh, at least the least developed countries, I think you still need to have contract by and large for some of those major infrastructure assets. So again, bankability is where you've secured the revenues. You have, uh, you know, you, you know how to, 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 to develop, to, to, to build. But uh, it's also very important that bankability means environmental and social and government governance matters are addressed properly especially with respect when you engage certain type of lenders that today, at least most of the lenders that we talk to, they need to make sure that, uh, you need to make sure that the project meets certain standards. Most of the people today use equitable principles for commercial banks, the IEC performance standard or the AFDB environmental and social um, uh, guidelines and policies. So yes, that becomes very, very important and governance it's actually also now quite important because at some point environmental and social standards were actually more, you know, quite important. They still are, but now we're also looking at governance. So bankability is all about um, risk identification, risk management, and the most risk averse is always going to be the debt providers. So they tend to get. I mean, when I think of bankability, I think about mainly the debt providers being happy, as you say, either at, you know one extreme the merchant, you know, where, you, where you, you, you use this word, go merchant, in other words, just selling on the spot market, selling, mm -hmm. selling the product, and then letting everything else sort itself out. That's pretty risky in most countries, um, certainly in developing countries. And therefore, there's a whole range of different guarantees and, and yes. so on that can be layered on uh, by different players, uh, all the way up to uh, the World Bank and, and potentially beyond. Um, yes. And that's the clever, that's the, in a sense, that's the clever bit. And, uh, and presumably that's also what creates the risk for those early stage developers. If they can't get to that hurdle of bankability, they lose all of the time and the money that they've spent developing the project. I think it's quite risky to be spending the money on the early stage uh, project development phase, because if you don't get to the bankability, you, you lose the money. You've got nothing. And, and, and it's, that's why people people are reluctant to do so, but this is so crucial part of the infrastructure development process. That's why somehow we need to figure out a way yeah. to add the resources there because uh, without creating the pipeline of bankable project, there is, no, there is no project available for investors to finance it, right? And, and so that's why we, we need to focus on the early stage, which Africa 50 is doing and uh, as one of our key uh, areas of focus. Absolutely. And in fact, when one of these, um, you know, multi-billionaires announced that they were going to be spending so many billions on climate action and somebody asked me, what should they spend it on? I actually said, put it into pre-finance, pre-final investment decision, project development. Once it's bankable, there's a lot of money available. But that gap that you're talking about is one of the key, key I, gaps. I, I, I agree with you uh, so much, uh, Michael. And by the way, you can give them my number. But, uh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I agree with you. I always say when I ask this question, it's two areas of focus. Early stage, project preparation, project development, and then uh, risk mitigation, maybe yeah. at the other end. 
because sometimes uh, you know you can structure the you know contract and get good offtakes and good government commitment, but it's sometimes worth the paper it's written on. So you also need to enhance that uh, that uh, you know part of the equation. Uh, I think these are the areas that provide the maximum leverage uh, to catalyze private investment in, in developing countries, especially in Africa. Now, just one quick question on your, you call it the development fund. Is that, are you making grants or are you making investments? So you, if you've got one of these projects like the, the Egypt solar project and you work before that bankability stage, the early stuff, the stuff that you might have to write off, is that, are you expecting huge returns on that because it's so risky or are you doing it for free because you're such a good guy? Okay, first of all, Marco, I know somebody said that there's no free lunch. Uh, we, I, we were not set up to, to give grants, okay? We were set up to mimic the private market because we want to catalyze private investment. We have to behave as a private investor, except that we're willing to take maybe a bit more risk, but if we take a bit more risk, we expect a bit more returns. Uh, so no, it's, a, it's, a cap it's risk capital that we deploy. We, we, uh, if, you, if you need a grant or concessional funding, you go to the African Development Bank or to the World Bank. Uh, if, you, if you need investment, you come to us. Okay, very good, very good. Um, it couldn't, couldn't be clearer, and, uh, and, and it'll be very interesting over time to see what returns you get on that early development funding, because it is riskier, but you are getting bigger percentages of the projects, uh, dollar for dollar, so maybe it's the best investment there is, who knows? No, actually, it's, it's not, honestly, because if you ask the, most of the big uh, you know, infrastructure companies, uh, first of all, it was... It was if it was a very juicy business, you you will see a lot more funds coming into right. this business. <laughs> I mean, you know, the reason why you don't see a lot of people coming, you should tell you something. Well, now, that, yeah, yeah. But our objective is at least to preserve the capital and to 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 have it. And but the main role, the, the main role there is it creates a stream of projects that right. you can then deploy more more capital into. Basically, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. Let, basically. I, I, and if I might, I'm a, I want to switch gear and talk yes. about um, you know, Africa's uh, energy, transportation, but also yeah. industry, agriculture sectors um, with the lens of climate change. And yes. of course, we know that we've got COP26 coming up. Yes. And there's a few really important um, debates and discussions. So yeah. there's one point of view that says it's really not Africa's problem. We didn't cause it. We, our priority is development getting to the acceptable life, life, well, life chances, let alone lifestyle, but health and, and so on. And we're just going to do whatever makes sense for Africa. And if you want us to do anything different, then the developed world who caused all of the emissions to date has to simply step in and pay for it. It's as simple as that. We have no responsibility beyond that. That's at one end. At the other end, it's saying there's really, we need to be... Um, leapfrogging to clean solutions and be prepared also to invest some proportion of African resources in that leapfrog. So those I'm portraying two ends of a spectrum. Where, where do you sit on that? What's okay. the right uh, answer? Well, I, I think, uh, Michael, as you can guess, uh, the, uh, the solution is a bit more nuanced than, uh, you know, talking about uh, one side of the equation or, or the other. Um, let me just, I mean, there's a number of things that, um, you know, people are talking about when it comes to climate um, policies and uh, climate commitment in Africa. First of all, it's true 
the continent, Africa contributes only to 4% of green, uh, global greenhouse uh, emission um, and the lowest of any region. And, uh, and the trend, according to the World Bank, is down uh, when you look at emission uh, per, per capita. Uh, there's one stat that I like, actually, I don't like it, actually, it's not good, but let me, it, 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 it clarifies the situation that we have. Uh, that Africa has the lowest uh, per capita uh, consumption electricity in the world, uh, about 185 kilowatt hours per annum as per the World Bank. And this is, if you compare it to America, uh, household consumption is about six days of what um, an American average household consume uh, compared to an annual consumption of an African household. Six days, one year. And yet, and, and I'll come to uh, your, your question, and yet Africa's today, our social economic development is threatened by the climate crisis. Uh, we emit or contribute the least to emission, but we suffer massively uh, from climate, uh, from the climate crisis today. Uh, we have uh, droughts, we have extreme weathers, we have cyclones, flooding, we have food insecurity, we have population displacement. So I think that climate change is very serious matter for Africa, okay? It's very, very, very serious matter. And this is why, you know, I think uh, Africa should be a key focus of, of Glasgow's discussion. Uh, and, and there are different ways, I'm, I'm sure we can talk about it a bit later, as to, at least from my standpoint, what could be some of the priorities. But I do believe that what we are asking for is a balanced approach. We have to be very clear that we are impacted by the climate crisis, so we have to contribute to addressing it. So we have to have climate targets, we have to try to meet them. But we also have to be very equally clear that we have competing goals, which are development goals. And we have to figure out a way to do both at the same time. There is no one should go first and the other one should come. We have to, we have to do both. So this is where I start. So, so that's why uh, I'm thinking about actually what we do at Africa 50, which is the balanced approach, which is to massively invest in renewables, but also looking at ways we can support uh, in natural gas uh, to support the industrialization of Africa and do both at the same time. And so that's one of the things that I like to expand a bit more, but just to give you in a, in a nutshell, you know, how I'm coming into, where I'm coming into in this debate. Now, and, you know, before we go any further, I have to say, first of all, I, 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 I understand and I agree. Um, so nothing, I'm going to provoke, I'm going to push you because I, I, I want to explore this, but it's not because I think that you're doing something terrible or wrong, okay? Um, but when you say you're doing natural gas, there are those who say you're making a, a, a historic mistake by following the, in a sense, the industries that have caused all these problems. And can you not uh, leapfrog and go beyond that? And especially it's not, you know, there is, I don't know whether you have a policy on, on oil or on coal, um, but even natural gas, the fact is we have, to, we have to get to zero. We have to get to at least net zero. Uh, by 2050, 2060, which is within the lifetime of some of the things that you might be financing? Well, um, 
Michael. Um, I, I understand the arguments on both sides, but it's about making trade-offs. And I do believe that it's, it's getting more and more difficult to look at those natural gas projects. Uh, certainly nobody, well, at least certainly not us, is doing coal anymore. Uh, we are also phasing out uh, HFO, but we in Africa, what at least the goal for Africa 50 as one of the African institution, our goal is to have a balanced energy mix, which again, addresses the development needs while limiting emission and transitioning towards renewable. Um, and I think natural gas uh, can serve as a bridge fuel, okay? It's a bridge fuel, but of course there's a risk of uh, stranded asset. Uh, we, we have to understand it. Um, but I think uh, one of the things that I like to put on the table is that, you know, maybe at COP26, if the international community, all of us agree that uh, more flexibility should be, should be provided to Africa and other developing countries at the same level of uh, uh, developing regions uh, at the same level of development to do this kind of uh, uh, project with natural gas and manage the risk of having stranded assets so that to so that we don't have as much difficulties as we are starting to see in funding what we believe are extremely important project for us. You should know uh, today, everybody wants to finance renewables. And I agree, I understand that. Uh, you know, over three quarters of new generation capacity that come to Africa are renewables. But we need uh, fertilizers. We need uh, to replace, um, uh, you know, biomass-based cooking uh, fuel. We, we need to uh, retrofit HFO and diesel power project. You know, Michael, today in Africa, right here today, there's 46 gigawatts of HFO-based and diesel-based generation capacity, which is running. It is here today. So we can say, you know, stop running those <laughs> diesel engines. They won't. People won't stop. They need electricity. I'm saying, let's retrofit most of them and use natural gas and reduce emission by 40%. So this is the view that I'm trying to take. And I think those conversations should, should happen at, uh, at COP. We should, we should talk about the projections today, which says that between 660 to 820 million people will rely on traditional biomass cooked uh, stoves mm. uh, by 2030 if we don't do anything. We can't say, oh, just do solar. Okay, I'd love to do that, but the capital cost. So let's think about these type of things. Let's think about the financing area. So again, you can see that uh, we are committed to contributing to solving climate, uh, the climate challenges because we are hit in Africa by this. So we cannot just say, oh, this now, because we are, we are faced with it. Yeah. But we hope that a lot of people that will be at COP and in other fora will say, look, what about the other part of the equation, which is the development agenda? What about massively increasing climate financing to make sure that we can help uh, accelerate the breach? So these are some of the thoughts that we have and uh, you know, I wanted to share with you. I'm happy that you brought, uh, you brought up the issue. So Alain, as you spoke, I had a sort of 
um, almost like a sort of flashback of the entire, I'm going to say, um, it's more than 10 or, or even 12 years where I was working with um, my great friend, uh, Kande Yamkiala, who was on this show on sustainable energy for all, because we had these exact discussions. Um, so when you talk about cook stoves, and it seems that there's a lot of activists out there who would like every African family or every developing world family to Im immediately have a ceramic hob connected to some marvelous electrical infrastructure. And I say, well, fine, that's a very nice aspiration for 2050, 2060, maybe 2070. But if you want to do that quickly, we've got um, you know, LPG, it's clean, it's much healthier. There's millions of people dying from uh, air pollution. And we've got a, we've got a, a and the impact on the climate will be so small because these are not people with expensive lifestyles. They're not flying to New York on shopping trips. They just want some of the basics of, 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 a, of a decent life. And, and I think it's absolutely um, their right to, to demand that. I think where there's more controversy is where you're talking about projects that are you know, targeting exports um, that seem like they have no plan. It's almost like, okay, the plan is first to build them, and then if, if there's a threat for them to become stranded, to fight like anything to maintain them and keep them operating for as long as possible. And there are some projects that look more like that, some of the big gas fields where it's really all about export. And, and you sort of, again, it's very difficult to sit here and say, you know, Mozambique has no right to try to earn, you know, foreign uh, capital, foreign exchange, just like Norway does. But you sort of wonder whether there aren't better ways of doing it, making hydrogen, making maybe some e-fuels. You talk about um, fertilizer. It should be possible to make fertilizer either to do it, um, uh, to use much less by being very smart in the use of fertilizer, so precision agriculture, or um, to make it using renewable electricity. Well, look, uh, Michael, what you what you are alluding to is actually a, a very important debate. Um, and I have to say that, first of all, today, um, only 5% uh, of uh, the energy mix in Africa uh, is it comes from gas. And yet, 40% uh, of gas, worldwide gas discoveries uh, have been in Africa. So we are not using... Yeah. We're not using enough of our domestic gas. We should, we should and, and I, I will come to you because, to what you said, because I actually agree that we have to increase massively the share of our gas that is used for productive activities on the continent, you know, uh, fertilizers, uh, all, other things, um, you know. So, so I, I do agree. That, that's actually one of the reasons why we decided to focus on midstream uh, gas, uh, building those pipeline, pipelines to connect uh, the production centers to the demand centers in Africa. We're not going to be the pipeline to send it out of Africa, at least well, Africa 50. But so this is the thinking. The thinking is, look, uh, what we are advocating for uh, is actually to, to use natural gas to solve some of our de developing challenges in terms of building activities that will create jobs. Now, it's true that you cannot say, look, don't make money out of your natural gas. Uh, I think that that part of the equation is a bit more uh, complicated. Uh, I, I, would have to, I would have to agree, although 
uh, you know, poor countries that have that as their main source of revenues, uh, how do you tell them, you know, yeah. stop earning that? No, and also for context, as we're recording this, of course, in Europe, the wind suddenly went was very low for the last month. We have um, President Putin playing some power games, trying to get Nord Stream done. And the single thing that we're doing a lot of right now is burning gas to keep the lights on. So yeah, I saw know, that, in, right? In the UK, yeah. it's a big issue. I mean, the prices went up like crazy. Because like crazy. Of, yeah. And actually, one of the very legitimate uses of gas, I think, for Africa, certainly for the next few decades, is, well, if you've got all of this very cheap wind and very cheap solar, but it needs the natural gas to enable it so you can get to very high proportions. So you're electrifying a lot of new households, new businesses, but you can only do it if there's a reliable backup for that interim yeah. period of a number of decades. That feels very legitimate to me. But Michael, we have to push for it because you have a number of people, very powerful people actually, that are thinking that we should phase out gas. But I need gas to increase the penetration yeah. rate of renewables in Africa, which we are doing by the way. But if you, if you stop gas, first of all, our grid systems are such that the penetration rate is gonna be whatever it is. By the time we get to where we need to increase it and the, the battery uh, technologies get to give us base load for more than four hours or so, what do you do with the people that you have today coming out of uh, mm -hmm. universities and looking for jobs? We have, we, have a, we have a real issue that we have. There's a sense of urgency. And I think that some people are sitting wherever they're sitting, they don't feel it. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic segue onto uh, the other big challenge or one of the other big challenges or the big debates, which is, well, they should use distributed power. We should be doing solar roofs, batteries. You say four-hour battery. A four-hour battery actually is nearly baseload by the time you've averaged it and the way that the uh, the way that the numbers work. Because the solar, you know, the four hours is relative to the peak. So if you have a four-hour battery, it's yeah. almost baseload. Yeah. What is the balance between the distributed solutions, be they solar, be they batteries, um, but but the stuff that you can do in the rural areas and grid connected? So some people say. Only grid connected is the quality of energy that Africa deserves. We've got it. Africa needs it. Don't talk about distributed. And some people say, yeah, but distributed is good enough for, for most uses, particularly rural, and actually probably even better than that. I, you know, It can be pretty much baseload, maybe not for heavy industry, but for pretty much everything else. Where do you stand on that one? Well, first of all, I don't see many of those people financing distributed energy projects uh, actually anywhere in the world. I mean, I think that uh, the other thing is that, you know, if we, if we have a financing uh, to help these business models actually get off ground and actually become bankable, uh, I think we'll see a lot more of those. I, I think at Africa 50, we look at the all of the above uh, strategies as well. But each of those strategies have to make sense uh, and to be bankable and to honestly, to make sure that investors that would be, in my opinion, the, 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 the biggest source to drive these investments should make a decent returns. But today, you don't have today many very successful large scale distributed energy right. projects on the continent. But let me push you there. Yeah, go. Isn't, isn't, isn't that your fault? You've been doing this for how long? The technologies work, right? The mini grids, the solar roofs, the batteries, it's all the fantastic cost reductions. You can't ask for more. We know it works. 
And we also know that franchise models work. Look how many McDonald's there are. I don't know how many there are in Africa, but around the world, thousands of Starbucks, McDonald's. So we can scale solutions that work and they can be financed. But isn't the problem that your business models, your, your HR, your careers, your models that you've developed just don't work for what is frankly, you talk about two, you talked about three years for the Egyptian solar project. Why not three months to put a mini grid into a village? Perfectly good projects. You have failed to make it bankable. Why is that the village's problem or the technology's problem? Michael, there's something that you and I know, but let's talk about it publicly here. Is that if there's a way to make money by doing this, I think that we will not be talking about this today. I think the, 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 there's a market failure somehow. And uh, I think people are still trying business models that are working that space, at least in the least developed countries. The moment that anybody finds a way that works, everybody will come in and try to do it. What, what, what has actually happened is that the first companies that were doing, they were doing mostly solar home systems, which is not the same as mini grid because mini grid is a bit more, it's a, it's a bit something that uh, actually I like quite a bit, but uh, it's, uh, it's been tested now um, uh, and it came after solar home systems. The fact of the matter is that uh, there are not enough of those companies doing this type of business. And frankly, as soon as we find some, uh, we, we want to invest in them um, and price, prices of those companies have gone to the roof because people actually believe that there is some part of the future that will be represented by distributed energy. And one of those, I am one of those. I believe that a part of our energy mix will be distributed, will be, will be distributed. Uh, but I think this is uh, 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 subsectors is still a bit of, at its infancy. And this is why, again, the other thing that I, I hope we can have as a conversation at COP is climate financing. How do we make sure that we actually bring money and money with less stringent conditions than our money, not my money, but our fund's money, to help catalyze those kind of new systems that would help us drive uh, adoption of clean energy uh, solutions faster than through uh, you know, typical standard market uh, 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 mechanisms. So yes, uh, we can do it, but at this point, it's still very small proportion. Mm -hmm. So I need to focus on the big grid connected renewables because guess what? We have a huge number of people coming into the marketplace, uh, the, yeah, looking for work, actually uh, jobs every year. You need to find ways on a massive scales to make sure that, and I have never seen a distributed energy project uh, supplying power uh, for a fertilizer plant, okay? And, and we, we need a lot of fertilizers to have the agriculture that we need. Uh, there's a lot of industrial activities that require massive base load power and, and, and not only four hours because uh, those industrial plants should also run in the evening, etc. So, so that's the goal. So, I think that we should do both. We should go distributed, uh, and but we also continue to do grid connected. But grid connected, we should prioritize renewables whenever we can. We should prioritize renewables and use gas as balancing uh, technique 
uh, to even increase the penetration rate. I've seen that in the US and other countries, maybe they're starting to use batteries uh, for balancing. But these are places where capital is easier to raise. You know, when you have to raise money for an African project, you know, there's so many hoops you have to, you have to go through. I, I used to have a global head, uh, hat. So I used to see what's happening across the world. And now that I'm focusing only on Africa, I was like, this is extremely hard. I mean, you know, that's our situation today. No, that's right. Look, I think that the, um, when you mentioned for the fertilizer plants, um, that would not be done by distributed. I think what people are talking about now is, uh, I call it the renewable energy superpowers, where you have very cheap solar, very good solar resource, you have a very good wind resource in the same place or connected, and you can then get to something like 60, 70, maybe even 75% capacity factor. You add in some batteries, potentially, and of course, you could add in natural gas if you were not being too pure if you were saying okay well look let's just you could get to 100 percent capacity factor and the question is are you better off going with 70 percent capacity factor or adding more capital to do batteries or, or whatever that that's the debate around fertilizers and i think it's a debate that is really only starting it feels to me in africa you know it's huge already in australia Actually, in North Africa, Morocco, you know, there's lots of, and in the Gulf, lots of talk about these fertilizer plants, but it's not distributed. The distributed would be for yeah. clinics, for villagers, light engineering, maybe, um, you know, some food processing, those sorts of things I think would work perfectly well with distributed solutions. Yeah, no, I do, look, I agree. I understand uh, what you meant. I was just trying to be a bit more like, no, no. Uh, it, things, uh, because you're pushing me. But you know what, Marco? Things are happening uh, in Africa today in terms of the focus on renewables, uh, because we actually have quite a bit of, uh, we're well endowed in this continent uh, with yeah. renewable resources. And there's stuff happening on the ground. I just heard that uh, earlier this year, uh, South Africa actually um, uh, launched a bid, uh, actually requested proposals uh, for dispatchable power over 20 years using solar. And they got beat. They get uh, one of our companies that worked before us. Uh, they bid it for 10.6 cents per kilowatt hours. Uh, they dispatch dispatchable from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. solar base with some batteries. I mean, it's fantastic, and it's happening right here. It's 350 megawatts. So we are starting to do. I think the, the key is uh, having good access to capital. These are yeah. capital-intensive stuff, and we need to figure out a way to make sure that. The capital is available because capital is difficult. What now? No, it's not only the capital because we need to improve the regulatory environment. We need to make sure that we have enabling environment allowing people to come and invest and have a reasonable expectation to get their money back. But that takes huge amount of time. Whereas you can mobilize climate financing, and yeah. COP should focus on that uh, to help drive this kind of adoption of new technologies quickly. But I think it's and I think it's a bit of I mean, it's not a bit of both. It's a lot of both, because when you improve the regulatory environment, it also pushes down the cost of capital. So it yes. makes the guarantees uh, cheaper and so on. Yes. Um, yes. What, one thing I'd like to um, to, to touch on, uh, we've talked a lot about batteries, but to be honest, it's the same. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very critical issue. It doesn't matter whether you're talking solar, whether you're talking wind, whatever you're talking about. Um, and that is a the extractive industries. Anybody who thinks that renewable energies have a light footprint on the globe has not looked at uh, at what's actually in, and it, by the way, it's the same, electric car, 
uh, you know, it's because obviously that's a big use of battery, but it's not just grid connected batteries. All of these are going to require an enormous amount of copper, nickel, steel, cobalt, of course, very famously, a lot of it from the DRC, um, rare earths. Uh, how do we make sure that it's not, that we don't solve climate, but at a huge cost in local pollution and local social problems and local poor governance and bribery and so on because of the extraction that has to take place to enable the shift to clean energy. Yeah, when well, you were talking like, uh, you know, <laughs> an African. I take that as a very, very high compliment. Thank you. <laughs> no, because, because uh, sometimes uh, some of the people who, uh, you know, uh, opinion makers, uh, they, they sit in places where if their issue is solved, uh, that's it. They're not necessarily thinking about looking at things from a holistic standpoint, because indeed mining doesn't happen in New York or in Paris or London, uh, but it happens in DRC. And indeed, it's an important problem. We have to make sure that, first of all, uh, looking at uh, this renewable uh, Thing on the on a holistic uh, way, but also making sure that we set environmental and social standards and governance standards uh, that require things to to be done the right way. Um, I think we have to look at these things a bit more holistically than saying get solar and wind. Now, do you finance extractive industry projects? No, uh, it's not it's not uh, precluded from our bylaws, but we just decided that, first of all, we are limited money and we are not gonna do, we're not gonna do this. But at IFC, we used, we used to look at it when I was there. I don't know what is the latest, uh, the latest policy, but uh, no, we're not doing that. Uh, we, we're doing midstream, we're doing a bit uh, down the road. But when you use steel or the solar panels for the Egyptian project or, or any other things that you're doing, you talked about a project, I'm not sure what it was in Cameroon, where you're from, do you insist that the raw materials are responsibly mined? Do you go back and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk the walk as well as a big investor, a billion dollar investor in, in the equity of these projects? Well, uh, what, what we go by is the standards that all the stakeholders have now agreed to do, which is the equator equ principles yeah. of the performance standard from IFC. I would personally want to go a bit uh, deeper, but I can't say, oh, I'm Alan. I mean, my, my, my powers are fairly limited, Michael. Uh, so I can't say, look, let's now do this. But, but I think that these conversations are happening that if in the equator principle of the performance standards, we decide that we will go a bit up in the supply chain, uh, then, uh, then we'll enforce it. At this point, our standard is the, uh, IC performance standard, equator principles, and the African Development Bank uh, policies and guidelines uh, on environmental and social and governance. Okay, let's finish off then on uh, COP26. Um, I don't know whether you are yourself planning to attend. Um, are you, will you be there? Well, I, I'm making plans to attend. Uh, let me put it this way. Um, I, I think, I, think that I, I hope that they want to get people to quarantine for 10 days before they go there. I mean, I, I have my vaccines, but uh, you know, it's hopefully it's not the case, but I'm making plans to attend. So I, I don't know whether, um, uh, where you're coming from Casablanca, whether that's going to be a uh, red 
list or amber list or green. I think amber is gone, but it may be only, it's going to, it, at worst, I think it's going to be as a five-day quarantine. I hope that's not going to deter you. Okay, we'll see. I mean, we'll uh, we have work to do. I can't just do a yeah. seat. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, in, in any case, we what, what yeah, should the, what would a good outcome for Africa 50, and I'm assuming for Africa overall, that it's the same thing, what would a good outcome look like from COP26? Well, I think that's a good question. Uh, and I, look, it's from my narrow standpoint of Africa 50. Uh, but I think, I think it's an issue that uh, most Africans will, will stand behind. Um, I think I see two things. Um, first, in the policy angle. For me, I think there has to be a, a, a major shift in policy on climate financing for Africa and really other developing regions as well. Uh, we, we need to see a significant increase in the climate uh, financing commitment from developed countries to developing countries. Uh, hopefully we talk about it because the commitment made in Copenhagen, the $100 billion have not been met. And today we need to go a lot more um, uh, bigger. Uh, I think this South African environmental minister uh, floated a number, uh, $750 billion uh, a year, which is almost like eight times what was committed before. Uh, anyway, I don't know if that's the figure, but there has to be significant increase and with teeth, with something that would actually happen. Uh, second thing that I think we should, I hope we can achieve, honestly, is uh, what we discussed uh, actually uh, on, on this call, on this uh, uh, discussion, uh, which is to acknowledge the specific needs of Africa and circumstances of Africa, and acknowledge that we need a bit more flexibility uh, to adopt uh, the appropriate energy mix that would basically both help us meet our target, but also meet our urgent development needs and natural gas should be part of the equation. I'm hoping that after COP, people could say, there is a way to ensure that you can finance natural gas projects that are geared towards economic activities in Africa without having too much of that risk of having a stranded asset. Because if, if that risk continues to linger, we'll see less and less financing. And then the development needs part of the equation will be less prioritized and then we will have instability. And maybe, you know, everybody will have the climate uh, renewables, but then we have conflict. So we don't want that. The other thing that I'd like to see uh, if possible, especially if we get there, is really to leverage the COP uh, platform um, to, to push for some innovative uh, financing mechanism to try to drive private investment in climate-friendly assets in Africa. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that uh, Africa would be a key, a central team at the, at the, at the climate uh, discussions uh, at COP26, uh, because even though we are only emitting uh, you know, less than 4%, I, I think the impact on us is quite severe. And I think we need to, we need to be at the table. People should discuss us. Now, it, in, in terms of the, um, the, the, the uh, you know, promoting innovative uh, financing, um, you know, one of the things that I believe I heard you say that one of the, the, your talk, um, we, which we are, we are actually promoting 
we, we spent the last three years promoting what we call asset recycling, trying to get um, you know, governments actually in our case to uh, concession out some of the assets uh, to private investors and, and get cash and then reinvest this cash into new assets. And I think we could gladly do green asset recycling. I'm happy to, because right now I'm not saying green, I'm saying any asset recycling, I like to do it. But how about we use a platform of COP to promote green asset recycling I and mean, we get NDBs, we get government, not the only government, but also NDBs, to recycle their asset, like uh, commercial banks or... And, and I, I, am, I am laughing, and I'll tell you the reason why I'm laughing, is I had this idea, this exact idea, about, I'm going to say, eight or nine years ago, and I called it the big green bucket. And what I said was there's all of these assets, green assets, sitting on the MDB balance sheets. Every investment bank in the world would recycle it, would say, right, we built it. It was risky. But then we built it. Now it works really well. Now we put it into the big green bucket and we refinance it. We get it off our balance sheet. We refinance it at a very attractive price. We generate a lot of capital that we can reinvest. These, these are fantastic assets because they now work and we should sell it on and recycle the capital. And I was told, basically, I was sort of told because I'm not an MDB insider, I was told that it was above my pay grade to worry about their balance sheets and what to do and how to how to recycle their capital and to basically not to teach them their own business. And there was a lot of resistance to the big green bucket idea. But coming from you, that's very powerful. No, but there's still, there's still resistance, by the way. So, uh, so that's why initially we were just going for government right. assets. Just but new I do money. Yeah. COP will be a good platform to say, listen, how about... We, we do that uh, and we put a bit, okay. uh, you know, now, like to that. Those, those four ideas, um, more climate finance. Um, there was the second one. Wait, there was flexibility there was, for gas. Mm -hmm. Flexibility for gas. Yeah. There was innovative green energy projects and recycling of the asset base. I'm going to say, I, I think that COP26 might be the beginning of that discussion, but it's very unlikely to be the end. Those feel like things that will take, I'm going to say, three to five years to achieve. Um, no, I agree. I Look, I agree. But you, you, because you have that platform and then you want yeah. to make a big splash there. But uh, clearly, uh, yes, it's too, uh, I, don't, I don't expect uh, solutions to be found during those. But I shall certainly be there because I'm organizing with your very good friends, the Atlantic Council, where we met at the Atlantic yes. Council Summit, um, together with Atlantic Council and... National Grid, Quadrature Climate Foundation, Octopus Energy. I'm organizing uh, the Climate Action Solution Center uh, just outside Glasgow in a very nice okay. uh, venue where we can really have these discussions. So if you okay. do get there, I'm quite sure that we'll get you involved and we can push forwards on your four COP priorities. Well, look, I would love to. And so I'll let you know, uh, my colleagues, uh, because I think I, it's, it's a good place to, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to be there. Uh, honestly, uh, I think, I think the, right, the right people will be there to have the, the right conversations. Very good. Alain, thank you so, so much for uh, spending some time joining me here today and sharing your thoughts. It's uh, very refreshing. I, I, I agree with everything you've said, even though I've pushed you a little bit, but uh, you've done a magnificent job communicating uh, your priorities, Africa 50's priorities, and in fact, Africa's priorities uh, during this critical time. So I really do thank you very much. 
Thank you, Michael. It was fun. I enjoyed it. And I always enjoy speaking with you. And um, I'm glad that uh, you also got uh, a few things out of the conversation. So that was Alain Eboubisse, CEO of Africa 50 and one of the world's great experts on the financing of infrastructure in Africa. My guest next week is Todd Stern. He was special envoy for climate change throughout the Barack Obama administration, and he led the US's negotiation of the Paris Agreement. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Todd Stern.